So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I've won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. And the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he who has presumed to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Just a quick reminder, our scholars, and I mean from the main line denominations, including Roman Catholicism, uh, Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, United Methodism, Episcopal Church, and so on. Our best scholars have decided that there are 624 texts in the Bible that really capture God's whole story. That if you will deal with these 624 texts from Genesis to Revelation, you will have heard God's whole story. Now, you can imagine how important the Gospels are for us Christians. So 40 of those texts may come from Matthew, 40 from Mark, 40 from Luke, 40 from John. Only one Sunday is given to this book of Esther. Just once out of 624 times do we have this book lifted up. So let's give it the best shot we have. It's important that you know the whole story as contained in this book, even though we could read out loud together just a few verses. This story describes a time when the Jews were enslaved in ancient Persia. In 587 and 586, it was the Babylonians who had come to Jerusalem, had laid siege to their capital city. Now, eventually, when the siege worked, the people were running out of food and water and had to surrender. Uh, the walls were breached. The gates burned down. Uh, the temple and the palace were ransacked. Everything of value taken out of both of them. Both were set on fire. And the finest and the best were force marched all the way to Babylon. Now, ancient Babylon was where today Iraq is. Can you imagine how Israelis would be dealt with today if they were force marched into the capital city of Iraq? They lived there under this horrible persecution for 50 years. And then an even stronger power arose east of them. Think Iran. Ancient Persia overran the Babylonians and said to some of the Jews, you can go home now. But the Jews had been gone for 50 years, and many of those who were alive by this time had never seen their own homeland. They had heard stories of a city in ruins, of a city on fire, of gates burned, of walls tumbled down. 
and many remained in ancient Babylon and ancient Persia. This story says that once upon a time during that Persian captivity, there was a king named Asa-Uerus. Now, this king is not known in history. Uh, this could have come from a Hebrew word that has to do with the powerful one, the august one, if you will. Most scholars believe this is Xerxes I. There's a queen mentioned named Vashti. Uh, there is no Vashti in Persian history that's ever been found. This is a story told by a Jewish writer. If you read right on to the very last chapter, this is a story that serves as background for one of the lesser festivals in Judaism called Purim. But we are Christians and we are looking at this story to see what we can glean from it. So let me remind you how it begins. This great king of Persia decided to have a banquet. He gave a banquet that lasted six months. His courtiers, those who paid him biggest taxes, were invited to this six-month-long party. They ate and drank and ate and drank for six months. And then the king decided, well, perhaps we should invite all those who live in this capital city of Susa to come and dine and drink with us, to eat and drink with us. And so they had a seven-day feast, at the end of which... This story says the king, deeply now into his wine, commanded the queen to come in her crown and to please the people. She was beautiful. But the queen wanted no part of this drunken orgy and refused to come. So the advisor to the king said, if she's allowed to get away with this, every woman in the realm will behave the same. We can't have that. We men have to exert ourselves. Banish her. And he did banish her. And then the advisors came up with a really shrewd plan. Why don't we go through the country looking for all the young virgins and we bring them into the royal palace. Uh, we bathe them. We spray them with fancy perfume. We feed them the best diet. And you try out one every night until you find the one you want to be the new queen. Now, this story says one of the young women who came as virgin to the king's court was a Jew. Her name was Esther. She had a cousin, Mordecai, who became her guardian when her parents had been killed. So there's strikes against her for sure. She is a woman in a world dominated by men of that time. She is an orphan. She is a Jew. And now here she is in the harem of a king who has deposed the Jewish people. Uh, Esther finally has her night with the king. He pronounces her the very best and most beautiful of them all and makes Esther his queen. About five years pass from the time she's officially named queen of the realm. And the king decides that he needs a new chief of state, uh, his best man, right hand. And he names Haman to be that person, the vizier, if you will. Vizier is really taken with himself. So he announces that any time he walks out of his royal residence, every person who sees him is to bow down, to lie prostrate before him. That's against the laws of Judaism. Jews know you shall have only one God. You shall have no other one but him. And you shall love this one God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. So Mordecai will not bow down. Haman is furious. 
and decides that he will not only deal with this Mordecai, he will deal with every one of these stiff-necked Jews. He will have them all put to death. So Mordecai uh, takes off his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes and begins to grieve and grieve. And then he sends word to Queen Esther saying, you are the one who could do something about this. Now, you need to remember that kings take whatever they want to take. And kings long ago had a rule that if you approach the king when you had not been summoned, you could be killed on the spot. No questions asked. Esther's been queen for more than five years. The king's interest have turned to someone else by this time. He has not summoned her for 30 days, this story says. So she decides to fast before making such an important decision to go or not to go to the king. And finally, after fasting, decides she will go and intervene, even if it costs her her life. So she puts on her most beautiful robes and her crown and walks through the palace halls to the king's quarters. And surely enough, he does not kill her. He holds out the scepter to her. She touches the scepter, acknowledging him as king. And then, strangely enough, invites him and the vizier to dinner at her house. Now, you need to know that this vizier, who hates Mordecai so much, who's decreed that all Jews should be put to death, does not know himself that Mordecai had a few years earlier saved the king's life. That shortly after Esther had become queen, Mordecai had heard of a plot on the king's life, had told Esther she had passed word on to the king, and the plot was undone. Those who were preparing to kill the king were themselves put to death, and the king's life had been saved. All of that is background to this invitation on Esther's part to the king and Haman to come and have dinner in her quarters. The next night... They are eating and drinking and eating and drinking. And the king is so impressed, he says to Esther, make a wish up to half my kingdom. You can have anything. And she said, well, sir, I understand that you didn't sleep so very well last night. That, in fact, the annals, the history of Persia were brought to you at your request. And that as they were read to you, you discovered there was a person who had saved your life by uncovering a plot, and that person had never been properly honored. Oh, my, the king said, this person must be found, and he must wear a robe that I have worn. He must ride a horse that I have ridden, and you, Vizier, Haman, you shall lead him through the streets in a parade. It's not what Haman had in mind. He's already erected a gallows for Mordecai. It's 50 cubits, which would be 75 feet tall, just outside his own residence. The other Jews can be killed where they are. He wants to see this one dangle in his own front yard. And now, if the king says you will dress him in one of my robes, you will put him on my horse and lead him through the streets of the city, Haman has no recourse but to do that. Still, he doesn't know the connection between Esther and Mordecai. Doesn't know that connection. Well, rather than Esther asking for any other favor, she simply says, I would like to invite you for dinner again. This has been fun. Wouldn't you like to come to dinner again? Well, yes, we would. And so the two of them, the king and his vizier, Haman, come to dinner again. And once again, the king asks 
Esther. What would you like? Make a wish. You can have anything up to half of my kingdom. And she said, I do have a wish now. My own life and the life of my people. There is a man who has decreed that I and all of my people shall die. I would like instead that we be spared and that he die. And the king asked, who is this man? And Haman, sitting at table, suddenly becomes the one to whom the finger points. This is the man. This is the man. The king is furious when a eunuch says, well, he has a gallows right outside his own house for Mordecai. The king says, fine, hang him on the gallows he's prepared for Mordecai. That's basically the story. Now, what do we Christians glean from this story that's helpful to us? I think there are three lines shortly before the passage we read. The first is in chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai says to Esther, as she's struggling with whether she should present herself to the king when she's not been invited, if you keep silence at such a time as this, deliverance will arise from another quarter. Which means what? Our scholars believe this ancient storyteller is saying, Esther, you could do something about this, but even if you do not, God will act. We sometimes sing little songs of he has no hands but our hands, he has no feet but our feet, he has no money but our money. And that's not true. It isn't true. Uh, God does count on us. God does want us to be at work in his world. But even if you and I fail, there will be others through whom God can work. The church will prevail to the end of time, we say, but that doesn't mean any particular church. Churches are closed every every year. Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches, Baptist churches that have lived a lifetime and finally do not have enough people who are really about the work of Christ in the world. And that church dies. So it's not any particular person. It's not any particular church on whom God is basing everything. This will get done with us, without us. God's purposes will be realized Bishop Robert Snazy is our United Methodist Bishop in Missouri. Bishop Snazy recently wrote in the United Methodist Reporter that he was driving to one appointment that he had there in Missouri, listening to national public radio, uh, when he heard a special program about a poet who had recently died. And he said his excerpts from this writer's pen were read one after the other. You realize how hopeless everything was that he had ever written. Uh, he kept saying that life is meaningless. It's it's empty. It's uh, it's hollow. It, it it simply means nothing. And this poet had asked his family that when he died, uh, his tombstone should be engraved. Don't try. The bishop said it depressed me. I'm driving along to a meeting with some of my preachers. And it depressed me. I was meeting with younger preachers in my conference, the under 35 group, and there aren't so many of them, he said. And as I met with them, I was asking them, who helps you the most? Are there people who are mentors to you, who encourage you? 
And he said they were willing to share some of those names, some of them preachers who are particularly encouraging and helpful and hopeful. But then he asked, and who is it that that depresses you, that discourages you, that is not helping you? And he said they also started talking about other preachers who seem burned out, washed out, just sort of going through the motions, waiting for that moment when they can retire. The bishop asked, is this the voice you hear deep in your heart? Don't try? Or is this the voice of God that says, if not you, then I will get this done anyway There is another quarter, one from another quarter, who will see to it that God's work gets done. Number two, on the next page in your Bible, when Haman is struggling with this business of having to lead Mordecai through the streets on the king's horse, wearing the king's robe, his wife and advisors, it says, his wife and advisors say to him, if in fact... This man is a Jew. You will not be able to prevail against him. I believe this is significant for us Christians. We have been at this business of God's mission 2,000 years. The Jews have been at this business 4,000 years. They count their history from Abraham and Sarah. We count our spiritual history from Jesus of Nazareth. We've been at this 2,000 years. They've been at this 4,000 years. And I think we have much to learn from them. I believe that mission was first entrusted to them to try to convince the world there is only one true God. This is who he is. This is what he expects of us. This is what he will do for and through us. If we follow the commandments of God. I resolved many years ago to know as much about our Jewish brothers and sisters as I could. You know my story. Two professors at Centenary College changed my whole way of understanding. Not by any particular thing they did or said, just by the witness of who they were. On that small Methodist campus in Shreveport, Louisiana, both of them having been professors at the University of Berlin, eventually escaping with a small son all the way to America, knowing one couple in Shreveport, Louisiana, getting off the train there and having the president of our Methodist college ask them to come and teach. And they taught till they were 70 years old there. They were almost 70 uh, when I was their student. Gail and I are planning our next year's vacation, and we've decided that if all goes well, we want to do trains again. We want to go back to Germany. Uh, Gail agreed to go with me to some of the best preserved Holocaust sites, and the best preserved ones are in Poland. There were more Jews in Poland than any other country in Europe uh, when the Nazis took over, and more Jews died in Poland than any other any other country. Uh, Warsaw, a huge concentration of Jews and thousands and thousands of them put to death. Not in Warsaw proper, though many were killed there, but put on trains from Warsaw and sent to Madonik. We've been there to Auschwitz. We've been there 
to uh, Treblinka. Uh, we've been there to Birkenau. We've been there. But you know, we've been in Germany several times and we've been on bus tours and so on and no one has ever taken us to one of the Holocaust sites. Not ever. So we haven't been to Flossenburg. Uh, we both want to go there where Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged by the Nazis at Flossenburg. But there were Jews there as well as that young Christian theologian who were put to death there. Uh, we plan to go to Bergen-Belsen and Mauthausen and some other sites. Dachau we've never been to. Because I believe the Jews were first entrusted with the mission and that we can learn much, much from their knowledge of God through 4,000 years. When Dr. Tankersley went to Union Theological Seminary in New York, uh, just almost across the street there is the Jewish Theological Seminary. And one of their brightest lights back at that time was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He was born in Warsaw, a Jew in Warsaw, Poland, 1907. Both of his grandfathers, both sides of his family, distinguished Hasidic rabbis, his own father a rabbi. So a third generation Hasidic rabbi. Now the Hasidim, you remember, are those who let the little forelocks grow in front of their ears. Usually they're curled a little bit. They dress like the Amish do. Uh, all in black, a little bit of white shirt for the men, but, but mostly you see the big black hats and, and, and the all black clothing that they wear. They consider themselves the most fervent, the most dedicated to the purposes of God. The University of Berlin was open to Jews, had, had Jewish professors, had many Jewish students before Adolf Hitler came to power. And Rabbi Heschel was one of those who received his doctoral degree from the University of Berlin. At the time, my two professors later on were professors there. But he, like they, saw that things were getting worse and worse. And in 1940, when one could still get away, he got away. He was only 33 at the time. He came to this country and within four years, when he was uh, only 37, he became a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City and taught there until his death. If you remember the pictures of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma, Alabama on that fateful march, uh, the person standing right next to him in most of those photographs is Rabbi Heschel with the little curls right in front of his ears with the big black hat because he said... God is not seen with our eyes. And there are millions who never hear him deeply within their hearts. So we are to be the presence of God. We are to represent the image of God. We are to represent the divine in all those places where there is injustice, where there is prejudice and bigotry and hatred uh, we are to be there to represent the reality of the one true God. We need to know as much as we can, I believe, about the faith of the Jewish people. Number three, this writer says that Mordecai said also to Esther, perhaps, perhaps you have been sent to this time and place. That certainly is a Christian message as well. 
Perhaps you have been sent to this time and place to make a difference. You've heard me tell that in 1985, I was incoming president of our Rotary Club downtown here in Tulsa. As we grow bigger churches than most of the rest of our country, we grow bigger Rotary Clubs here as well. Uh, There are more than 32,000 Rotary Clubs in the world, and the ninth largest club in the world is in downtown Tulsa. Uh, We are a really strong club. The average Rotary Club in the world has 32 members. Our club has just over 500 members. We're the ninth largest. So I was honored to be asked to be president of that great club. Uh, The Sunday morning, the Rotary International Convention was beginning later that day in Kansas City. I preached here. I taught Sunday school. I preached again. Gail and I rushed to the airport, flew to Kansas City, and we were in our places when they had the first plenary. And the principal speaker was old Dr. Sabin. And he leaned on a crutch while he spoke from the podium and said, we are now 30 years from the polio vaccine. And in this world of ours, there are still 500,000 new cases of polio every year. Fifteen million children have had polio who didn't have to have polio. You Rotarians can do something about this. If you can get us $125 million and a million volunteers... We can drip just a few little drops of polio vaccine into the mouth of every child on the planet who's not had it yet. We can eradicate this disease from our planet. He underestimated the cost a little bit. We Rotarians have now raised a half billion dollars. Now the Gates Foundation have offered us a hundred million to help us finish this up. Last year, there were not 500,000 new cases. There were fewer than 500 in the whole world, but we're not quite there yet. Not quite. In our most recent Rotarian magazine, there was an article about a woman in Jackson, Tennessee, who was a victim of polio. She a little bit younger than I. Uh, I remember going to the movie theater when I was a boy. And to dramatize how desperately we were trying to find the cause of this disease and some answer for it. In the lobby of the movie theater, there was an iron lung. Did you ever hear one of those run? They had one in in the movie theater in my hometown. And they would have this iron lung running uh, to show you that people who are completely paralyzed from the neck down cannot breathe for themselves when they had polio. And so this huge iron lung, it looked like a barrel, uh, you know, and a person just had to be in this barrel-like thing with this plunge weight helping them to breathe. Diane O'Dell was born in 1947. She was three years old. We have a three-year-old granddaughter. Can you imagine a three-year-old child having polio And having such a difficult case of it that she was paralyzed for the rest of her life from the neck down. That she would live the rest of her life from the time she was three in an iron lung. Diane died just a few weeks ago. She had lived all these years since. Stricken in 1950. At three, she lived to be 61. Never able to be a part From that iron lung. But her mind was good. And her heart was good. 
There were friends who spoke at her service who said, as children, as teenagers, they would go to see Diane. She could play cards. There was a mirror up over her face, and she could see the cards that were held up for her, and she played very well. Uh, With tutors, she was able to get a high school diploma. With tutors, she was able to graduate from college. She wrote a children's book, speaking it, of course. She couldn't use her hands or arms. But speaking the word, she wrote a children's book and then discovered that maybe the most important thing she could do was to be a telephone counselor. They put a little earpiece on her and a mouthpiece close to her mouth, and it was voice activated over time, and she could be a counselor to people who were desperately ill or people who were desperately disappointed, frustrated, discouraged, perhaps even suicidal. They would call Diane, and she would listen and talk and listen and talk. And then suddenly, just a few weeks ago, a little thunderstorm sprang up right over Jackson, Tennessee, and knocked out the electrical power to her house. Her family ran into the backyard and started trying to crank the generator, and by the time they got it running and hurried back into the house, she had died. You think the voice she heard was the one that said, Don't try? Or the voice she had heard said, Perhaps you were sent to just this time and place. Amen.